Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. William J. Mann is the author of several biographies of Hollywood figures, including Katherine Hepburn, Barbara Streisand, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marlon Brando. In his new book, Bogey and Bacall, The Surprising True Story of Hollywood's Greatest Love Affair, he tackles two subjects at once in an exhaustive but never exhausting biography. I loved every word of it. It's a wonderful book. Welcome, William. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. So the subtitle of, of the book is The Surprising True Story of Hollywood's Greatest Love Affair. That sounds like the, you know, the subtitle of a movie almost, right? So why surprising? Like right off the bat, what surprised you? Yeah, you know, I think it's surprising on a couple of levels. You know, first of all, the story of Bogey and Bacall has been this fairy tale of great true love and all of that. And, you know, we had it all, you know, that song that came out in 1982 and just like Bogey and Bacall. And, you know, it wasn't a fairy tale. I mean, and that's the truth. I mean, that was the first surprise that, okay, um, this great story, well, there's a little more to it. There's a little more complication. So that's the first surprise. But in some ways, that's not a surprise. Most Hollywood legends, um, have some, uh, you know, tenuous relationship to the truth. But the second surprise is, is that despite all of the problems and despite all of the challenges, yeah, actually it was a pretty amazing love story. So it's, it's, you know, I was surprised first to see like how different the truth was to the legend. And then as I got researching, I was surprised again that, well, you know what, despite all of that, they really did love each other. That's great. That's great. Now, your book, of course, is not only about their relationship of, you know, of Bogey and Bacall. It's a dual biography of each person. And, you know, you know more than anybody else. There's been a lot of ink spilled on these two. There's been a lot written about Bogart and Bacall, you know, of all these people in Hollywood history. So what makes you want to throw your hat in the ring? I mean, was it daunting to say, well, you know, the world needs another book about Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and I'm the guy to do it? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I have to put, take uh, give credit where it's due. It was my editor's idea. He said, you know, I really think you you ought to think about doing Bogey and Bacall. And and what intrigued me was the idea that they've never been done together. And and in fact, there really hasn't been a serious biography of Bacall at all. So, you know, there have been some you know, biographies of, of, of Bogey, some really great, some not so great. And but the, but the last really significant bogey biography of the major biography was, you know, 20 years ago. So it was time, I think, you know, when you know, these figures are, are, are so well written about and their stories are so often told. But as we move forward in time, I think we get new ways of seeing them. And there's a new lens that we can go back and look at their lives. And, you know, with Bogey and Bacall, you know, there's so much to reconsider, you know, how were the legends made? Uh, what was the truth of that relationship? You know, sh- he's 25 years older than she is. What was that all about? What were those kind of challenges? So that's what, you know, sure, it was daunting, but at the same time, it felt like this was a good time to do that. 
That's interesting because, you know, that's interesting what you said about needing a new approach. Cause I remember when I read the contender, which is your book about Marlon Brando, I, you know, I had no idea who you were and I picked up this book and I started reading it. And then it was only, you know, into that book a while I thought, Oh, William Mann's approach is Brando as like this political guy, as much as it is a movie star. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way to think about Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, I think as we, you know, as different issues come up and different um, ideas and concepts arise, you know, we're dealing with now a period of time where we're looking at issues of uh, gender equality and, you know, the relationship between men and women and, you know, what are, you know, what, what, uh, uh, what, what sort of challenges might a young woman, a young inexperienced woman face being married to a very successful much older man in hollywood i think we've become much more open and i and uh and aware of those issues so i do think there's always a way to see these stories in a new light yeah that's great so one of the themes of your book you touched on it before is like there's this gulf between people's actual lived lives and the myths that that are created about them and we know that's part of hollywood but your book gets really into like parts of like the bogart myth and how the myths are made um, you talk about the chroniclers of the Bogart myth and how he was kind of packaged for us. And you talk about Betty wanting to correct the myth when she wrote that book by myself. You talk about uh, their son Steve's attempt to do that. He wrote that book, Bogey in Search of My Father. So right off the bat, like, what are some of the myths about these two people that that you found aren't entirely true? Oh, there's so many. There's so I, many, right? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really to unravel these stories, you have to go right back to the beginning. You know, and and the the fact is that you know people think of Humphrey Bogart and they think of the cynical tough guy who, you know, he he you know he's got brass knuckles, he he, he can take care of his, himself and all of that. But you know, he started out as this playboy, you know, on this Broadway playboy, this dandy in many ways, you know, the son of a very wealthy family, and you know, at all of the aristocratic uh, privilege of of his class and. You know, when he finally becomes recognized on the stage in the 1920s, he's compared to Rudolph Valentino. I mean, this is not Humphrey Bogart. This right. is not who we think of as Humphrey Bogart. So how did he get from that to, um, you know, the Maltese Falcon? How did he get to Rick Blaine and Casablanca from there? So, you know, it, it's it's the myths kind of says he was this reluctant actor. He didn't want to be an actor. He was kind of roped into it. You know, but they said that about all of the stars of the era. You know, a real man wouldn't want to be an actor. A real want man wants to be a longshoreman or a lumberjack or something like that, you know, or, or a gangster. And so those myths are just, um, they're Hollywood concoctions that tell us in many ways what society was like at the time and what what we as a, a society were was was looking for um and but the myths go you know into as we mentioned earlier to the relationship between with Bacall to the relationship with um Bogart and his his earlier wives there there are so many myths that um you know, I, I'm not attempting to tear myths down. I think people sometimes say, oh, this is the guy who, you know, tears down the myths. And, right. I, you know, I'm not really, I'm looking to understand the myths and the legends yeah. and to understand where they came from and how they were sold and and then kind of tell the truth behind it. But I, And I think when you do that, you you appreciate the myths even more. Yeah, because one thing I learned from your book is just how many, I mean, how many stages Bogart walked on as a theater actor 
before he moved into the into film. I mean, and it's funny you said about the myth about the reluctant actor. And, you know, you get all these things about Bogart's many insecurities like the rest of us. But of course, when you watch The Big Sleeper, the, he's, he's just projecting confidence. You can't believe yeah. it, right? And that's yeah. part of how he was sold to us and why we still watch his movies, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And he was also, he was just a phenomenal actor. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I appreciated how good of an actor he was until I, you know, I watched every single one of his of his movies. You know, he was able to project confidence and a sense of, uh, you know, this grounded uh, persona when he didn't feel that way in his real life most of the time. Right. So you just really begin to see how very, very good he was at his craft. Yeah, because when you were younger, we watched Casablanca or The Big yeah. Sleep or something. For the first time, you think, well, that's just how he walks around. Right, right. <laughs> like, yeah. He's not acting. He's just, he, that's he, who he is. He was walking around on three foot uh, stilts because, you know, he was shorter right. than his leading ladies. So, I mean, he, you know, he was always confronted with this, you know, this uh, dichotomy between, you know, who he was and who he was pretending to be on the screen. Yeah, it's the power of the it's the power of movies, right? You can't believe that at the end of Casablanca, Ingrid Bergman said you quote her as saying something like, you know, I, I kissed Bogart, but I never really knew him. And you're I like, really? Him. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's great. So let's talk about let's talk about Bogart since he's the first part of your book. He's born on Christmas Day in 1899. What's his childhood like? What's his relationship with his parents like? Well, you know, as as I mentioned, he, you know, it was born into the American aristocracy. He was the one percent in many ways, um, <laughs> and and like many white Anglo-Saxon Protestant wealthy families of the period, Catherine Hepburn, who I also wrote about, was the same had the same experience. There's there's a lot of withholding between parents and children. There was no like, hey, great job, you know, give me a big hug, clap on the back, you know, it, the the. The culture said that if you do that, you're going to make your children soft or you're going to make them um, uh, contented. And, and so there was Bogart was very frank in saying there was no love in my family that, you know, there was no affection. And, you know, uh, when when a child is not held and, and affirmed as, as a, you know, a very young person, they grow up with a sense of feeling of, of lack of self-worth. And, and that's what he dealt with for the most of his life. This was a tough family. Um, you know, his father had um, illnesses, which he, 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 he palliated with um, morphine. His mother was a workaholic, you know, one of the few women who actually had a career outside the home at the time. And, and so he, he never felt close to his, his parents at all. And, and that, that really, defined who he was as he as he went forward and they were constantly disappointed with him always saying you know, he's, he, you're not measuring up you're dropping out of school you're you're not staying in this job so he he always felt that he wasn't living up to what his parents expected yeah because they you have you talk about them trying to send him to this prep school or that person or he yeah. didn't pass the exams and and he he's almost like holding caulfield right <laughs> as he's growing up and they don't know what to right. do with him yeah exactly and and you know, even when he finally gets on the, uh, you know, on the stage and he's, he's, he finally finds some, you know, a purpose in life. This is, this is maybe what I want to do with my life, you know, and then he gets a, a bad review and his mother reads it to him and is almost in a, you know, a, a triumphant way. See, you can't even do this. So it, it, it was tough. He had it yeah. tough. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, you call him, I want to quote you, you, you remark in the book, you say Bogart was as unlikely a star as they came. So why is that? Well, I'm talking about when he became a Hollywood star, because, right. you know, when he, you know, he's 40, you know, yeah. past 40, really, when he becomes a star, that's unusual to become a star at that age. And he also, 
he was not a good looking guy at that point. You know, he was in his earlier days, he was quite handsome, but by 1939, 40, he, he had, you know, he, he wasn't aging well. He was a hard drinker. He was a heavy smoker. He was losing his hair. He was not, you know, he wasn't Robert Taylor. He was, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't Gary Cooper. And so he, you know, who would have selected this guy? You know, um, he, he was kind of made to be a character actor. You know, yes. he, he was somebody who, and I think he expected to be a character actor. And it, it was suddenly Maltese Falcon turns it around and he's, and people think, wow, this guy can really, this guy can really do something. But, you know, if you had had to pick him out of a, a lineup at Central Casting, nobody would have said that that's movie star material. Right. Today, you could imagine looking at, I don't know, Brad Pitt's yearbook picture and be like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, the right, guy's going right. to, that, <laughs> that right, guy's going to exactly. Yes. Right. But also you talk about in your book, and this was, like I said, this was so fascinating, is you talk about all these parts he did in Summerstock and on the road and in and, and these, these you know, podunk towns where he would have like 10 minutes on stage as like the cousin of somebody and just learn, and just hoofing all that. And it's so funny that now from our position, we could say, didn't you guys realize you had Humphrey Bogart there? But of course, right. it doesn't mean they missed the boat. They just like he didn't present himself as this future superstar. No, he didn't. And, and, you know, but those years were so important to yeah. his, his, his career because he learned, he learned how to, how to act in, in a way that many movie stars never did. You know, I mean, they, it's those who didn't come from the stage, you know, they learned how to be, you know, they, they learned how to uh, respond to the camera and turn and, you know, find their light and, you know, hit their marks, but he understood how to build character. And, and that really makes all the difference. Right. And like you said, like he should have, if you had a bet with a time machine, you would have said, yeah, he's going to play Robert Taylor's bad brother or right. something like that. Right. He's not going to become Sam Spade. Right. He's not going to become. Right. You know, right. No, right, right, right. Exactly. So you talk about, we've talked about a lot of his famous performances here, like Sam Spade and Rick Blaine, but one that kept popping up in my head as I read the first two thirds of your book was not Rick. It was not Sam Spade. It was Dixon Steele, mm. which I got the sense you like that movie as much as I do. Dixon yeah. Steele is in Nicholas Ray's film, um, In a Lonely Place. And I bring that up because, you know, Dixon Steele, for people that haven't seen the movie, is, is this this guy filled with rage and anger. He's almost like a, a Travis Bickle, you know, in, in, in an yes. early 50s movie, right? You call uh, Bogart a ticking time bomb. And you also talk about what you call corrosive anger that mm. went through Bogart's life a lot. So, so talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Dixon Steele is one of the uh, most autobiographical uh, portrayals that, that Bogey ever gave. I mean, it's also, it's a, a fantastic film. It's one of the greatest film noir. Um, and Bogey's just, he's just phenomenal in it. it it's, it's too bad that it it doesn't get the kind of recognition that Casablanca or the others do, because it's really very, very good. And, you know, the character is, he is, he's bitter, he's resentful. Um, he's paranoid and, and Bogey was, was all three of those things in life, um, especially at this particular moment in time. You know, he was, this was a period of time when, um, he was, you know, 1950, 1949, he was in the crosshairs of, you know, the House on American Activities Committee. He was getting, you know, um, uh, pushback and criticism all over the country from the studios, from, from other producers. And he was he was frustrated he, at this point in his life, and uh, and you see that you see that kind of anger, but it's an anger really that he lived with, you know, from from 
uh, from when he first started out on on the stage and 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 when he and Jack Warner would get into it, you know, just Bogey would explode with with rage, with with you know this deep sense of you know I demand my due and I'm not getting it, and and that's it. It comes through in that film so well, and it's it's it's, it's a fantastic picture. Yeah, your your description of him there and also in your book reminded me a lot of Sinatra. Is somebody who like had a lot of insecurities, who can get really angry, but that their whole persona was super cool. I don't worry about anything. Nobody, you know, everything is just, you know, rolls right off me. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes. And I think I think Bogey was a, a bit more um uh compassionate or or uh, somewhat um less egocentric perhaps in Sinatra um, because he uh, um, and of course they end up having a friendship and then kind of a rivalry later on. Yeah. So let's, let's move on to Betty as you, as she's, as Lauren Bacall is known throughout the book and quickly just for our listeners. So where did Lauren come from? You know, why is she Betty? Howard Hawks gave her the name Lauren because he was, he didn't, he thought there were too many Bettys out there with Betty Davis, Betty Grable. Um, and also because he was trying to, he was selling her as this seductive siren and Betty was kind of, you know, every, every girl name, you know, it's a, um, and so they were trying to sell her and, you know, he, he, he actually said, you know, we'll, we'll say it was your great grandmother's name. And, you know, that's so ridiculous because, you know, her great grandmother was, you know, a, a, you know, a Jewish Romanian living in, you know, some little village, like her name would be Lauren, but, but yeah, so that, it, it, and, and Betty hated it, never liked it. So she always, you know, Lauren was her professional name, but she was always Betty. So let's talk about her, you know, um, where did she grow up? What was her childhood like? What was her relationship with her parents like? It's different from Bogie's in that she had a, a very loving uh, childhood. Um, her mother was incredibly devoted to her. She had two uncles um, who were her father figures, her uncle Jack and her uncle Charlie um, Weinstein. And uh, her, her real father had left the family in when she, Betty was about eight. Um, you know, and Betty grew up believing that her father had abandoned them. Uh, it turns out that maybe he hadn't, maybe he had been kicked out. You know, I go into that in the book, but nonetheless, no matter the reason for him leaving, um, she felt abandoned. And uh, and that that stayed with her in the way that Bogie was always searching for some kind of parental love. She also, even though she did have a very loving mother and a loving family, you know, she was always looking for, um, you know, that that father approval. Yeah. And you point out in the book that to the to the end of his life, he kept insisting in interviews that I did not. She, that's her mother's story. That's not oh. my story. Right. Classic yeah. family dynamic there. Yeah. And he brings out the the checks. He, he yeah. you know, he says, here's all the canceled checks that I that I sent to support her. Yeah. So and, and also before we move on. So she's also um, like Bogart, though, she is determined to make it. I mean, she is she she struck me as that character from a 30s movie that wants to just get five minutes with a producer or like, you know, the, 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 the lead broke her ankle. This is your big night. Yeah, absolutely. She was, you know, she was <laughs> intrepid, you know, the way she she would chase yeah. producers down on the yeah. street. You know, she's 17 years old. And, you know, and the amount of interviews and auditions she wrangled, you know, without having an agent, without having any experience. You know, she was a very pretty girl and she knew how to bat her eyes. She also was intelligent and she could carry a conversation. And uh, um, and she managed to get the interviews that she and the auditions that she she wanted yeah that's the pure hustle i mean pure hustle absolutely. right absolutely so so she finally gets a shot you mentioned howard hawks before it's 1944 
She gets cast as Bogart's love interest in To Have and Have Not. What happened as they shot the film? Now, this is the movie where she gets the famous line, but what, right. what happened on, on the set as they made this film? You know, what's so great about To Have and Have Not, it's one of those rare films where um, when the two leads fall in love on screen, it's actually the two Happening. actors <laughs> falling in love at the exact same time. So, right. you know, when Steve and and Slim fall in love, you see that that chemistry kind of ignite in that famous scene. You know, that's the same moment in which uh, Bacall and Bogey were like, whoa, the, you know, there's something going on here. So it's it's so fun to watch that scene yeah. because you 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 see it right in their eyes. Which is why everybody watched it today. Like that's the movie where you watch two people literally fall in love right in exactly. front of you. Exactly. Yeah. And and you know that's that famous scene. You know you, you know how to whistle, Steve. You put your lips together and blow. You know that wasn't even supposed to be in the, the final picture. It was it was a little bit that they had come up with for Betty to do a screen test, and uh, <laughs> Bogart saw it and Hawks saw it and said, "This is really good. We should use this in there." And and of course it's become the you know, the, the, the catchphrase of, of Bacall's career in many ways. And just like other things we've been talking about so far in this interview, of course, you mentioned how before she went on or before she auditioned, Bacall would be shaking, like literally physically shaking. But you yeah. watch to have it, have not. I mean, there is no cooler customer. Oh, I mean, yeah. she's the only one that can go toe to toe with Humphrey Bogart. And they're having this cool off because you don't know who's going to win. Right. I mean, it's hilarious how she was shaking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Hawk said she's more insolent than you, which is, you know, which was, you know, who could you possibly have somebody who's more insolent than Humphrey Bogart? Um, and she did. I mean, I, you know, she's she's I don't think she ever did anything quite as good as to have and have not. She's just so. Yeah, uh, she's just fantastic in that. Right. She owns it. I mean, she walks on screen and you're thinking like, it's funny, again, hindsight's always 20, 20s, but you're right. thinking like, wait a minute, producers like passed on her? Like, right, right. People yeah. weren't interested in her? Right. Yeah. 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 She's great. And, and there's a moment in To Have and Have Not where it's, it's, she doesn't smile much in the film. She's, you know, she's mostly smoldering. And but the, there's one moment when she smiles and her face lights up, her eyes lights up and, and you just, you know, you, you can't help falling in love with her. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. So, and so Bogart does, right. And let's talk about, you mentioned this before, their difference in age. So, so yeah. many people might be concerned, you know, your 19 year old daughter comes home, you know, with a 45 year old, right. You know, how did that affect them or did it not? Or did people give it a, a pass because, well, you know, if she brought home Humphrey Bogart, okay, that's fine. Like how, how did that age thing play into their relationship? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's very, uh, rarely commented on in the press which you know you'd think people would be commenting yeah. on that. but you know in 1944-45 you know it, it, you know it was it was rather common you know a older man takes a younger bride usually as a second wife I mean it's still not uncommon um, but people didn't look at what they were looking at it from the man's point of view oh look at what he got you know whereas you know what was it like for the women and and you know it the people who were asking that question were, were Bacall's family. They were not in any way supportive of this match. Um, you know, her mother was was trying to forbid her from seeing um, Bogart. And, you know, Bogart was married. He was a heavy drinker. Um, you know, he's 45. Betty's 19 when they meet. Her, her two uncles did everything they could. You know, it, the letters that I was able to uncover, they they wrote to her saying, please don't do this. You're going to ruin your life. And, you know, and then, in, you know, in retrospect, of course, you'll say, well, she knew better. Um, 
she married him. They, you know, they loved each other. Had they had a successful marriage, but in in many ways, in the beginning of the marriage, it was very difficult. Um, but we didn't stop drinking. Um, but Paul was very young. You know, even though she was very street smart, she was also innocent. And the idea that this husband was not coming home at night, he was staying out drinking. She's sitting home all alone. That, that was hard. It was very hard in the beginning. And I go into that in the book, yeah. those challenges that she had to deal with. Yeah, because that's part of the myth that doesn't really get uncovered until now, like when yeah. I read your book, right? Um, you know, I got the sense of reading that everyone in, in Bacall's family wanted to avoid her becoming what we would call a trophy wife. Right. But but Bogart never, I also got the sense from your book that Bogart never, you know, the idea of a trophy wife is, you know, I'm older, but I'm going to get this young woman to, to, to placate my, to appease my vanity. But right. I never got the sense in your book that that's why he was interested in her. He's like, she understood him. Yeah, you know, absolutely. No, he, he wasn't. And in fact, on the set of To Have and Have Not, uh, Howard Hawks was a bit predatory and was coming on to the call and people were encouraging her to go spend time with him in his dressing room. And Bogie really became her protector. And he was always very gentlemanly with her. He was, you know, he was, um, he wasn't really ever interested in younger women. He didn't chase the young ones. You know, he, his wives were always about his age. And um, I think he felt very protective of the call. Even before right. he fell in love with her, I think he felt very um, uh, supportive and he wanted to make sure that she was treated well. And so yeah. that was a really good basis for their romance to begin. Yeah, you get the sense in your book as a reader that Bogart knew what Howard Hawks was like. Like he knew the playbook of all these guys. Yeah. And he was like, I'm not letting you get involved with this. Just right. trust me. And that kind of like that defensiveness almost be turned into like, the, the you know, their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Bogart was known as someone who didn't cheat on his wife. So though he did, um, you know, he did cheat on on Mayo and, you know, it's, you know, it's perhaps debatable whether he cheated on Bacall, but, but there was, um, that was his reputation. He didn't hit on his leading ladies. He didn't make unwanted passes. John Houston said, you know, John Houston was chasing down every woman Everybody. across the set, but John Houston said, you know, Bogey, my, my good pal Bogey, you know, sex is way down on the, on the list of his interests, you know? So, you know, and, and that's, that was one thing in writing about him was, was really refreshing to see a man who was not looking to, um, take advantage or exploit women. Right, right. Well, this was now you mentioned Mayo, that was his third wife. So when he marries Bacall, that's his fourth marriage. It's oh. her first. Howard Hawke said she made Bogey, and this is the quote, change for the better. And you say Betty was very good for Bogey. How how so? Well, I think it's I think it starts with what we were talking about in that Bogey felt protective of, of Bacall. Disappointing her was different than disappointing Mayo or some of the others, you know, because he he knew she looked up to him and idolized him. And to disappoint her, you know, would have just crushed him. So right. when she would ask him to try to not drink so much and to come home earlier, he tried in ways that, um, you know, he didn't really with his earlier in his earlier marriages. And I also think that that Betty's ambition and her intelligence impressed him and it didn't threaten him the way you know his he would always insist to his first three wives you know your career comes second to mine I mean he, that, he literally said that and you know I expect you to stay home and and take care of the home um he did not like want to be competed with uh, by his wives and yet with Betty he was uh, I think he began to see that um you know she she didn't just demand his respect she earned his respect because 
you know, when they were, they were both very political and they were both very, um, you know, felt very strong about uh, the political issues around um, the, 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 during the McCarthy era, during the House on American Activities era. And it was Betty who was uh, planning that and speaking out about those, those events and those, those um, um, uh, speeches, it, it just as much as Bogey. And, and he came to respect her and the other women that were involved in that process. And I, and I think by the end of the 1940s, his attitudes toward his wife, to his to marriage towards women has changed significantly. And Betty really did that just by the sheer force of her integrity and her intelligence, I think, and, and her, her devotion to him. You mentioned their political lives. And, you know, this is a this is a, a subject you're really interested in. Like I said, it comes up a lot in your book about Brando. So let's talk about that a little more about what happened when Bogart stood up to the committee on un-American activities and then you know, you, you have this part in the book where he kind of had to recant, but not really recant. Like what what happened to them politically? Yeah, I mean, they, they you know, the, the, it's the famous story, the, the whole bunch of them, Bogey Bacall, right. um, Danny Kaye, uh, Paul Onreed, um, John Houston, they all flew out to um, uh, D.C. to stand up against the, um, the you know, the the, uh, the testimonies that were being forced by, you know, some Hollywood figures to the uh, uh, House on American Activities Committee, and they went out there rather naive. They, I think, they went out thinking they'll they'll say their their speech, and everybody will applaud them, and you know everybody will you see the um the you know the, the the wrongness of this enterprise, but you know they met a very um a, a much more aggressive press in D.C. than they were used to in Hollywood, and they were they were um chastised they were they were lampooned really and, and called dilettantes and um naive and and worse than that they were called um you know they were somehow um fellow travelers and uh, fifth columnists and 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 that somehow they were um enabling subversion in in the united states and and the blowback was so difficult more much more than any of them ever expected that you know, Jack Warner was like, "You, you better do something here. This is you're, 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 um, you're destroying your career. You're, you're smearing Warner Brothers." So Bogey does have to make a statement where he basically says, "Look, I'm not, I'm not a communist. I'm not supporting communism. I just think that you know it's an issue of free speech." That didn't really, that didn't really, um. <sighs> you know, satisfy either side. They said, well, like, you know, one side said, oh, you're, you're, you're trying to have it both ways. And other way, the other side said, uh, um, oh, you're throwing in the towel, you're throwing us all under the bus. So it was, it was difficult for him for the next few years to, um, um, you know, find that middle ground. And, and, you know, he wrote a famous piece for Photoplay, or it was one of the fan magazines saying, you know, I'm no communist, and that, that enraged people on the left. And then he, you know, and then he kind of supported um, some liberal uh, candidates for office, which enraged people on the right. So, you know, he couldn't he couldn't win. And right. uh, um, so it, it was a very difficult time. Yeah. People think now with, with the, you know, with the in the Twitterverse or something that like this whole idea of like actors should stay in their lane. Like that's not right. new. That's right. that's oh, not no. a new that's been going on forever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. And yeah, I mean, he, but in many ways, he and, and Bacall and, and those, you know, who went to Washington in 1947, they, they were really among the very first to do yeah. that. So it did, did take some courage. And I, 
you know, whether one agrees with them or not, or thinks they were naive or not, they went because they believed in something. And that, that right there tells me something that these were, these were people who um, had a sense of themselves and a sense of something um, more important than just their, their own work or their own careers. So moving ahead 10 years, that was 47. So now it's 1957. Bogart's 57, and this was the year he died. And this, for me, was probably the most moving part of the book. You know, how did he and the other people in his circle approach his, what was clearly his impending death? I mean, they all knew it was coming, and, and there's a lot of drama at this part in the book. And like I said, it was really, really moving. So talk about Bogart's death. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it was such a different time. You know, that they they knew what was coming, but they also denied what was coming. You know, the doctor withheld information not just from bogey but from bacall told you know the doctor later admitted yeah i knew he was going to die that this operation we we're giving him would not help him but he didn't tell that to them because you know that was part of the culture at the time the, the medical culture you know you don't tell people because the news might shock them too bad and you know make them give up hope and um and so bogey for the longest time just thought he thought he was going to get better and and even Bacall, you know, would say, well, he's going to get better. But I think she, because she was so close to it, began to realize that that's not probably going to happen. Um, and it was it was about a year, a year's time in which he struggled and with the cancer. And, um, you know, he would he would have rallies for for a time where he could actually get back on his yacht and. Um, but then other times he'd be, you know, flat out and, you know, he, he lost so much weight. I think when he died, he was, you know, barely 80 pounds and, you know, he was never a big guy anyways. Right. Um, you know, so it was, it was a difficult year and, um, you know, his friends rallied around, tried to keep him, um, in good spirits, but, but gradually it dawned on everyone that this, he was not going to get better. Yeah. There's that moment where he tells, um, Betty, I don't want the kids to see me anymore. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. oh, like right at the end, he said, you know, don't, don't let them in anymore. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, and, and Stephen, you know, writes about that in his book too. And, you know, he felt badly about that for, for a long time. Like, why didn't dad let right. me come in and see him at the end? But, you know, you can see bogey, bogey had mirrors. He could see what was happening to him. He could, he couldn't walk, you know, he was, uh, he couldn't eat. Um, so it was, it was very difficult. Yeah. So, um, Bogey dies and you get about, you know, the last say third of your book is, you know, Betty moving on. And I, we'll talk about specific moments, but I got this overall impression that, you know, she had these triumphs on stage, especially, and she did other film work and, and especially at the end did the mirror has two faces, but like, she was never like a hundred percent happy or satisfied. Is, is that accurate? Am I oversimplifying it or? No, that's, that's accurate. There was always a sense of, of, um, you know, why, why haven't I gotten the kind of accolades that other people have, you know, right. um, I, she, you know, it, it starts really with the, the rejection from Frank Sinatra, which was a very public humiliation that it was really hard for her to get over. And, you know, he, he was a real cad, you know, and um, broke her heart, but worse than that, you know, really did it in such a public way that she left Hollywood and felt she could never go back. She was so humiliated. Um, you know, a because lot of just a Sorry, just interrupt. So the listeners understand that she told reporters that they were engaged. Yes, and then he went ballistic. Correct. Right. Right. He felt that that he he had he had said yes, let's get married. She 
somehow let it slip. You know, I go into the book about how that actually slipped, but he was furious with that and and just cut her off without, you know, any, um, any statement. And, and uh, it just was, it was horrible, horrible for her. And so she, she was constantly trying to come back and find a place for herself again, you know, and it, it had to be hard. You know, she was so young when she married Bogey and she gets, you know, Cinderella goes to the castle and, you know, with the prince and she's, you know, royally um, welcomed all around Hollywood. She becomes, you know, one of the um, hostesses of Hollywood and um, with the rap pack and all of that. And suddenly it's all gone. And it was very hard for her to find a new space and a new path forward for herself, you know, and to be honest, you know, she's very good in, in, in many of her films and she, you know, she wins two Tonys for her work on Broadway. But she didn't have Bogie's range. She, as an actor, um, she she wasn't, you know, she idolized Catherine Hepburn, but she didn't have Hepburn's talent. Um, you know, her her first idol was Betty Davis. She it was nothing compared to Betty Davis. It's, you know, it's sad to say that. You know, mm -hmm. she could do great things, but she was never going to be um, get these really important film parts. And and I think that disappointed her because it, it went to her own feeling of self worth. You know. Um, is it me or is it because people don't like me? And, you know, it, it did, it did result in some bitterness and resentment as she got older. Yeah. Because the part she plays in applause, of course, is modeled on Margot Channing and all about right. Eve, who right. is this older actress? What's right. going on? How come I don't get the good parts anymore? And right. so I read your book and I'm like, man, was there talk about a part you were born to play? <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and she was very conscious of, of that and and then in her second uh, Broadway success, which she wins her second Tony for, um, Woman of the Year, she's she's um, you know playing Catherine Hepburn's P and and you know and then she goes on vacation, Raquel Welch fills in for her and Raquel Welch gets these amazing reviews, and because you know saying like every time I you know I turn <laughs> around somebody's got to try to take me down a peg. That was her. That was her. Um, her, her perspective for, for most of the uh, second half of her life. Yeah, you quote a review there where this was all news to me, where Bonnie Franklin, who ends up being, you know, I'm watching as a kid on One Day at a Time, yeah. ends up singing the song in applause. And these right. people are like, yeah, this unnamed person in the chorus was great. And you have Lauren McCall, like, what the heck is going on? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think she, <laughs> she, she was very frustrated that she felt she didn't get her due. And, and of course, when she doesn't win the Oscar for um, The Mirror Has Two Faces, she was she was devastated. Yeah, you say people wanted her for who she was more than they valued her skills as an actress. Right, and that seems right. like a like a good way to, to summarize it. Absolutely. So, so, so the way that Bacall comes, I I have to share a really really quick personal story with you. So the way that Bacall comes across in the second half of this book, I just got to get your reactions to this. This is a true story. 1994, I'm watching Dark Passage with my wife, one of the Bogart Bacall movies. Yeah. Um, that's the one where it's all filmed from his point of view until oh, he yeah, gets the, yeah, the plastic surgery, right? So that night we go to see Ricky Jay, the sleight of hand artist in New York City. And I wait for my wife to come out of the bathroom and I hear this voice and it sounds like Lauren Bacall. And I say to this usher, I go, that's funny. That woman sounds like Lauren Bacall. And he says, it is, it is Lauren Bacall. What are the odds? <laughs> we just saw the movie. Four hours later, we're here. Right. So my wife comes out of the bathroom. I'm like, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. What do you mean? I go, Lauren Bacall is in the theater. What are you talking about? So we go, we sit down. And Lauren Bacall and Steve Bogart sit right in front of us. Uh -huh. And I'm sitting there like, I can't believe this is happening, right? right. I was like starstruck. Everybody I told that story to said, well, did you say anything? And I said, well, no. Like, what am I going to say? Like, I felt like kind of like, your book made me glad I didn't say anything. <laughs> 
fair enough or not? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. She was not very gracious with the public. It's sad to say, you know, she she valued her privacy. But I also think she was there was a bit of an imperiousness to her at the end. Um, and we can go into, you know, I try to understand that in the book where that came from. But it, it was really um, uh, she didn't suffer fans gladly. You know, there are many <laughs> stories of people coming up talking to her and she would just turn an icy stare at them right. um you know and she was she was uh you know but but at, at the same time look she was a survivor you know she had been through so much she was a she held true to herself to her look to her image she wasn't out there trying to you know take you know use botox and fillers and make herself look into whatever she was she was lauren bacall and she lived that every inch of it so and you yeah, said survivor yeah, you said survivor. Like, can you talk a little about her marriage to Jason Robards? Because that's that's something like you get a survivor badge for. Oh, absolutely. I mean, she, you know, she. I think she when when Bacall married Robards, I think she thought she was getting you know another bogey because he's a great actor. You know, he's a heavy drinker, but cool you know, guy. she handled. Yeah, she <laughs> handled a heavy drinker before. She knew how to do that, but you know, Robards was not the marrying type. He he says that later. You know, I, I didn't really want to get married. They have a child. Um, uh, who Betty uh, had a very close, has, you know, right up to the end, had a very close relationship with. Um, so she was always grateful that she had the marriage to Robards because of, because of um, Sam. But at the same time, it was, it was yet another uh, humiliation for her. It's something that she couldn't make work. Um, yeah, she was lonely. I, th I think that's what it comes down to is that she was lonely. You know, she was only, she was only, you know, uh, barely 30 when bogey died and so you know she didn't have that person that partner through life that that so many people would hope they get and you talk about her apartment in new york which is filled with all these tchotchkes and, and all these things like like there's yeah. all these objects and these souvenirs but it seemed like she was always looking at like i'm going to fill up the walls with things i'm going to i want to fill up my life with things Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, um, people would always comment on that. You know, you, you can't find anything in her apartment because there's, you know, there's tchotchkes everywhere. And some of them are, you know, priceless antiques and some of them are, you know, just, you know, you know, five and dime stuff, you know, um, she did. She she didn't have a close relationship with her two older children. Um, many of her friends were much older than she was. And that's not surprising, given, you know, the, the crowd she moved with. Um, so they died before, you know, she was still there. And so she was very lonely in her last years. And that it's, it's sad. I wish I, I, I wished that I could have painted a happier portrait of her at the end. Well, let's talk about that because I happened to, I was scrolling through Goodreads and I'm looking at online reviews of your book and I saw a, a really, really quick review by some anonymous reviewer. And I thought to myself, well, I, I want to get your reaction to it. It said, um, mm -hmm. he likes Bogart. He doesn't like Bacall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oh, I, I I take issue with that. I I do. I have, a, <laughs> I, I, I have a great deal of sympathy for for Bacall. Um, do what you know? Would I want to hang out with her? Probably not. Right. You know, I, I I don't think she was a very pleasant person to hang out with. Um, but I have I I I hope I have empathy for her. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've all felt lonely, and we've all felt, um, you know, not. Um, not respected or, or not valued. I think that was a lot of how she felt. She didn't feel valued. And right. so I, I really wished I could have found things that, uh, you know, oh, here's where she was happy. Here's something that made her happy. I just didn't find it. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm certainly 
perhaps come across as being harder on her than I was Bogey. But that was because Bogey, Bogey had lots of friends and lots of people who loved him and, and that he loved back. And it was, you know, you didn't see that with, with Bacall, sadly. One of the scenes that made me laugh out loud was there's a part where I think it's Bogey's second wife. I think it's, um, it, she's looking for him one night in New York or someone's looking for him in New York and she eventually finds him in a bar with Thomas Mitchell, who of course is Uncle Billy and It's a Wonderful Life. And they're both at, they're both been drinking for 10 hours. And I'm thinking to myself, imagine that conversation. You have oh, Uncle God, Billy yeah. and Sam Spade yeah, after you know, 30 martinis. That's right. That's right. He was also... Um... Scarlett O'Hara's father in God. Yeah, that's Hare. right. That's right. So, you know, yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, and he, that's the thing. Bogey had, people loved Bogey. And yeah. um, uh, some of them were afraid of him. Let's let's be frank about that. But, you know, when he won the Oscar, um, he was, he was, uh, you know, the, the applause in, in the, the auditorium that night. But Bacall actually comments on that, like, gosh, this town really loves him. And so when she doesn't get the Oscar and that, you know, and people are just kind of moving on, I think that really stung because she realized I never got the love of this industry in the way my husband did. Yeah. You, but you know, also this whole idea about how you approach them as a biographer, you say, one of the many lines in your book I underlined is this, you say, you know, she could be difficult, but she had, and this is your line. She had an ego that needed to be colossal if she was going to do what she wanted to do. If she was going to accomplish what she did. Like she needed that ego. Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, Hepburn had the same thing. I mean, uh, um, Streisand has, has the same thing. You know, you need that ego if I'm going to go out there and get what I want, because, because especially for women, you're told you can't have that, you, you know, you, you know, just sit down and wait your turn. And, and no, in fact, you know, Bacall had to have that ego if she was going to get out there and, and, and make those dreams of her childhood come true. So let's last question. Let's let's tie it together with Bogey and Bacall and like kind of like, you know, William Mann's attitudes towards them as a biographer, because you've written several of them. Right. How do you avoid, for lack of a better phrase, like falling in love with your subject? Like, how, how do you how do you keep that? Detached? Do you find it's difficult? Do you just walk into this with like a blank slate and say, but to see what the research tells me? Like, what's that like? Because you got to live with these people for years. <laughs> right. And, and that's why, you know, you, I guess you have to fall in love with them a little bit or at least find them very compelling, uh, you know, because you're, you are, you're going to spend so much time with them. So you've got to be interested in them. Um, I have written, you know, several biographies, some of my subjects I have liked more than others, some I've disliked more than others, but each of them, I have found something about them that I, um, I admire and that I, um, I'm interested in. You, you have to have that. You have to you know, this per you have to care about this person on some level to keep going because otherwise it's, it's a chore. Yeah. And so it's really about finding the humanity in, in, in these people. Um, and some, you know, as humans, sometimes we're very nice people and sometimes we're terrible. Um, we are, you know, we are inconsistent in our, in our behaviors and our activities and our emotions and, finding that and finding that in the people that I write about, you know, is, is always the goal. And I, and I have to tell you, everybody I've written about, um, when I get to the final death scene, I get emotional because I've just spent three years with these people and now I'm writing their death scene. And it's there. I, I always, I always get, you know, I have to wipe away a tear. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it, you know, and, and the same thing with Bacall, you know, and certainly with Bogey. Um, 
but all of them because you know you're you're privileged to be able to find something about them and to tell their stories now of course as a biographer you know i am telling their story through my eyes a different biographer might tell their story differently um but still you know telling someone's life really you, you, there is some responsibility that comes with that and it, you you know you have to you have to make sure that you do find the humanity otherwise you're you're just a tabloid journalist yeah. you know and i think you really have to find you have to find their story and and what makes them human you're not trying to write a puff piece but at the same time you're not supposed to be the hatchet man either you're supposed to they're, right. they're, you know oh right and you know you don't you don't want it to be um you don't want it to seem as if oh i'm just writing this because i'm um i'm so in love with this person because then yeah. that's nobody's going to trust what you say yeah. but at the same time you know you don't want to come across as you know i'm just this you know i just want to tear them down yeah that's why i loved your book so much because it's it's a it's a thick book but it never felt that way and you really get the sense of them as human beings one of the things i wrote down you know in the margins was there's, there's a part in hamlet where horatio starts praising hamlet's father and he says oh he was a good king he was all these things and hamlet says he was a man horatio he was a, he was a man right and that's he was a person and I think that, so um, yeah, your, your book is such a good book about like, because it's very hard to imagine Humphrey Bogart as a, as a guy, Lauren, you know, right, their right. marriage, what do, you, what do you talk about on Tuesday night? <laughs> and uh, right. right, yeah, right. I think you really yeah. nailed it. So William J. Mann, it's Thanks. been great talking to you today. Bogey and Bacall, The Surprising True Story of Hollywood's Greatest Love Affair is published by HarperCollins. It's available now wherever books are sold. You can find it on the New Books Network or wherever you get books. It's a great, great read. William J. Mann, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been great.